brothers wiss. The brothers wiss, brothers wiss. The brothers wiss. The brothers. Hey everyone, this is Tommy with the Brothers Wisp. Just uh, getting our sponsors because I totally spaced mentioning them. Um, they're super great because they help us uh, do this and keep everything afloat. And um, you know, that's it's a nice little bit of uh, change for keeping for doing uh, fun things. So, first off, um, our Patreons. We have a new Patreon. Uh, let's see here, Megan Y. Let me double check on that one. Yep, Megan Y. Um, uh, introduced her and the Slack, and uh, super cool to see uh, new people showing up. Thanks for supporting us and uh, helping uh, the Brothers Wisp. Uh, other are um. Uh, Shoutouts are um, Sonar, a scalable, intuitive, and comprehensive ISP billing and operational support system. Learn more at sonar.software. Tower coverage is your RF propagation system to empower your network. Real-time data metrics enable your coverage area, reaching your customer base, and more. The industry's best RF propagation mapping system allows website integration for customer signup and pre-qualification. Use this data to scientifically plan network expansion and help your WIS succeed. Get a free trial today at sonar at towercoverage.com. Woof. Uh, Preseam is an edge network QoE solution that enables proactive management of the network and subscriber experience to achieve higher customer satisfaction while lowering operational costs and increasing revenue. Preseam is made by Ateo Networks, whose goal is to enable local and regional ISPs to thrive by solving network problems with products that people love. Launched in 2017, Preseam has helped more than 400 ISPs in the U.S. and around the world deliver better internet to their subscribers. And uh, we're also brought by the uh, Villo, a complete mesh Wi-Fi hardware and remote management solution that empowers WISP of any size to delight your customer, reduce your operating costs, and grow your business. Designed with input and feedback from the ISP community, Villo is proud to be a trusted partner of over 150 ISPs around the world. You can find out more at store.villaliving.com. Um, if you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the brothers WISP, throw a few bones there. You can get into the Slack uh that's the eight dollar a month tier and um you know a lot of great people there helping out uh answering questions um and we also have a lot of vendors who are um, participating in that as well so if you have questions directly for vendors um they could be more than happy to help and they do that a lot so and on to the show hey everybody this is tommy with the brothers wisp uh this is gonna be a special episode uh, today we have a really special uh, visitor on the cast, uh, Mr. David Zumwalt. Good afternoon or good day. Thanks, Tommy. Yeah, so he is the chief executive officer of WISPA, and he got put in that position back in May, as I recall. Started June 1st, officially. June 1st. I was working behind the scenes in May, and the bead NOFO dropped on May 13th, so my Tack went to redline pretty quickly, even before I stepped into the job. Yeah, you were you were having to go uh, full pedal to the metal because uh, our previous uh, C Claude was uh, he was he was a crazy guy even in the first place. So um, I just was kind of hoping to introduce you to the industry, introduce you to the Brothers Wisp crowd, and kind of talk about um, what Wispa does and uh, the various things that make your make your uh, life busy. Um, also with us today, I have Jeremy below me here. Hey guys. Uh, you're up in Alaska time. David, where are you hailing from? I'm in central time right now. Okay. All right. Uh, so uh, David, how about you just give us a little bit of uh, like, I got a, the really great opportunity to meet with you shortly after you started uh, in Indianapolis that we had the, there was a conference there and you came and gave a talk to the crowd there. And I got to, got to hear a little bit of your background. So I was open to kind of get some ideas on like, let everyone know, you know, why are you so brilliant? <laughs> oh. <laughs> I have to pay him $20 every time he says something nice about me here, you know, but, uh, no, I'm kidding. <clears throat> so I've been in the telecom industry for most of my career. Um, I had a grandfather and an uncle who were in the old AT&T organization pre-divestiture. The point I'm saying here is just that 
I had a lot of encouragement to consider going into the telephone business. But when I started to do that while I was in college and then also <clears throat> coming out of college, I realized that I wanted to be on, uh, on a team that was more entrepreneurial. And so I found an opportunity to work with a company called CompuCon at the time. It's now actually part of ComSurge, so you can sort of see how the history worked there. But we were doing frequency coordination work in terrestrial microwave. We were doing satellite air station work, land mobile radio work, and some very early engineering for the cellular industry, which was just kind of getting started. A few years later, I had an opportunity to start my own company focused pretty much exclusively on cellular. And we were doing RF um, propagation modeling, network planning, uh, implementation support. Um, we weren't climbing towers, but we were doing just about everything else. And then network management for companies that were in the, the cellular industry. And uh, I started that with two other partners. We sold that business in 1997. And then I took a turn and went into early stage venture capital. I was a limited partner in one of the VC funds in North Texas. Did a little bit in private equity as well. And uh, what I liked about that is that while I'd had my business in the wireless industry, as most people who are listening to this podcast will know, the demand on your time is so extensive that you it's very difficult to achieve any kind of lifestyle balance, especially if you're trying to do things like start a family. Um, so once the business was sold, I actually had time to do that. And sure enough, my two kids came along. Then I got an opportunity wasn't expecting, but a recruiter called me uh, looking for uh, someone who could fill a position in the U.S. Virgin Islands in economic development. And uh, I'll tell you straight up, I thought that was sounded kind of preposterous, but I was going to go kick the tires and see. And uh, the undersea fiber networks that form the backbone of the global uh, internet have to land somewhere and be repowered. And one of the major hub sites is actually in the U.S. Virgin Islands connects North and South America to Central America, Europe, and I think now even Africa. And the idea was, could the territory of the Virgin Islands leverage that those hubs, there were a couple of them there, to benefit economic diversity. And so I did that for nine years. Um, to fast forward a little uh, further along, ultimately ended up being asked to come in and serve as the Chief Operating Officer of Broadband VI, which is a US VI WISP. Um, and I stepped in in 2018 and ultimately transitioned out after we had successfully sold the company at the end of last year. <clears throat> I knew Jeremy through a relationship that uh, we that Broadband VI had had with, uh, I guess, Prasim at the time. <clears throat> anyway, so I was thinking about what I was going to do next. <clears throat> I knew that I was going to be heading back to North Texas at some point. Um, some friends at WISPA got a hold of me and said that there was an opening, and but I consider it. And as things worked out, I did. I threw my hat in the ring, uh, you know, went through the uh, recruitment process and ultimately was selected to come aboard on June 1st. So that's how I, I've ended up here. And I know that was sort of a long way around the horn, but I hope what people heard in this is that I have a telecom background. I've been in wireless for a long time in mobility and in data and in RF. Um, I have been in the shoes of an operator that's running a WISP. Broadband VI has about 9,000 customers to kind of give you an idea of where it sits size-wise. It's now part of the Liberty family of companies. And so I have a very special, you know, heart for people who are entrepreneurial and are looking to bring something new to the marketplace in terms of network capabilities. And I've been there and sort of done that. You said earlier, why am I so brilliant? I would disagree with that. I know my smart, but my wife is smarter than I am. And I presume everybody else is too, but anyway, thanks. Yeah. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, well, so I, I really thought your talk and, and I really appreciate you kind of giving us the the background um, because I mean, you're, you're kind of at the forefront of the wireless internet service providers and our conversation um, with a lot, basically anyone outside of the industry Um you know, we're, we have a lot of really cool uh, and really diverse characters, and there's a lot of great conversation in there. And, you know, we interact with the other networking stuff a lot. But uh, what I mean, the the larger guys and, you know, federal on that side, that that's a whole huge conversation that, yeah, we talk about it a lot. But there's it's very infrequent that I see 
big movements and things actually being stated. Uh, and I was very heartened. Um, let's see, I was doing some broadband. Uh, we had my, my last job, we had to do a um, testing for uh, we were Arda, no, ACAM 2. Um, and so we had, we had to do testing. And I was reading through the documentation from the FCC about how you're supposed to do the testing. And there's WISPA in there and their comments about, hey, how do we want testing done? And, you know, how does this affect people positively, negatively? Uh, and the FCC responding to that. There was another little bitty WIS. There wasn't other comments. You know, there was, you know, other big uh, corporations, you know, uh, Comcast, uh, CenturyLink. They had big representation, but uh, my company's uh, input probably would be completely ignored by the FCC. So that it's there and is considered and impactful, actually, um, I feel like really is an important thing for the industry. So um, I, we've mentioned a few things about how busy you've been. Uh, what what has what what brought you to the uh, uh, set your pedal to the metal? uh this summer well so uh, my official start date with wispa was june 1st and by the way for people who don't know wispa has been around in some form or fashion for about 20 years it's not new on the scene and to the point that you were making tommy um i don't think wispa in the beginning was seen as a uh, particularly impactful player by the fcc it took really sustained effort for them to be begin to see not just wispa but the industry for what it is and so uh, WISPA has enjoyed um, a very healthy relationship with the FCC, especially over the last few years, uh, because they know who we, we represent and they kind of know how we got there. But anyway, I started on June 1st. I was finishing up some transitional work for Liberty and for Broadband VI earlier this year. And, and so I told WISPA that I would help out behind the scenes, kind of begin to come up to speed, meet the team, learn what the priorities that were then in place were, uh, and then on May 13th, I mean, literally right after starting, the uh, NTIA dropped the BNOFO, uh, which is the 40 plus billion dollar deployment of funds to uh, accelerate uh, the closing of the digital divide. And so uh, that redlined my tachometer pretty quickly. And so I've been <laughs> kind of running um, uh, steadily ever since then as a result. But it's a continuation of the things we've done in the past, whether it's spectrum policy or the work we're doing with the FCC. Uh, in the case of NTIA, there had been a lot of advocacy work that had been done with them before. So when the Infrastructure Act was being passed or debated and then passed in uh, late 2021, mm -hmm. uh, WISPA was active with NTIA at that point in time. So we've had good relationships in place. But I, I'll still say that the NOFO took us by surprise. We knew that they were going to be slanted towards fiber wherever possible, but the strong fiber preference that came out almost to the exclusion of everything else was a surprise. Yeah. Uh, and and that's really does seem to be where things are pushing in at the federal level. Um, I think uh, it, it, so like one of the places where I've worked on like funding in the past was back in Colorado and I was very disappointed and disheartened. They'd been doing it for 10, so seven years now. And um, they're the only of the like 112 projects that have been funded. Only like three, four were entirely wireless based. Like a couple extra had, had like wireless backhauls or something in it. Um, everything else had been fiber and would own they they were really almost to the dead exclusion of it of of anything else and so it's really disheartening to see um government agencies really pushing that and really push bowling over uh wireless options in a lot of regards i i think so one of the things i want to uh, say early on is that the WISPs, uh, we see WISPs as entrepreneurial ISPs that are working in markets that tend to be either left behind or ignored or set aside by larger uh, providers. And we have WISPs in major markets too, but that's primarily where WISPs are operating and they're deploying all sorts of technology. You know, right now, WISPA probably has on the order of 20% of its membership on the vendor side actively involved in fiber. 
And uh, a greater percentage of that of our members are actually deploying fiber somewhere. It may be backhaul, it may be, you know, metal mile, but it might not be to the uh, uh, to the end user or to the you know last mile because of cost. And to your point, Tommy, I think you know what I've experienced in my uh, my industry experience, my career has been that when people can see something, they can appreciate what it is. If you hold up an optical fiber and show it, it's like, wow, there's glass in there and this is wonderful. And if you start trying to describe what a wireless signal is, it's like, well, where is it? You know, and why doesn't it work in my basement? You know, that, that sort of thing you're going to get from people who are looking at it. So it's not about being a devotee of a particular technology. But what one of the things I want to do is I want to be able to help WISPA and its members sort of shape the narrative in a way where WISPs are not just seen as, you know, completely clinging to one technology over another, because the reality is that's not the way WISPs are behaving. They're using whatever the best possible technology, best possible approach uh, they can uh, use to be able to reach, you know, their customers. And um, and WISP had been through a lot in the process of doing it. It's costly to put up access points or to put up this infrastructure. And you have to get through the, in some cases, permitting process, or you have to be able to work around other sort of competing systems that are in your area. And then the federal government comes along and change, changes the broadband standards. So you're doing forklift upgrades on your networks. You know, this, this is the sort of stuff that I think people don't really see behind the scenes. They just assume that, my internet's going to work fine and the government has said it needs to be fiber and so if you're not fiber then you know you can't get it done but as we all know wireless does get it done and for a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time in many places especially where we're trying to focus on the digital divide so what i would say is that if you're in a uh, an urban area and you're trying to build a competing wisp you're probably going to want to have wired infrastructure you know some sort of fiber you know there are certainly opportunities for wireless in that. But once you get into remote areas of Colorado, for example, it's mountainous, you know, it's very expensive to run fiber at every endpoint. When, if a customer is looking for gigabit service, you can deliver that today over wireless. You know, Here's I wanted to ask about that. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, David. Uh, this is Jeremy here. The, you know, coming into an organization like WISPA, which has had wireless as, you know, part of its DNA since the inception and to have, you know, such a heavy focus on wireless initially and, you know, to find, of course, that, as you mentioned, that WISPA members aren't just doing wireless and traditionally non-wireless companies aren't just doing fiber. You know, we're seeing this hybridization happening here. You know, how are you able to spin this narrative in the sense that, uh, that allows people to to feel that their 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 choice in the marketplace and by this i mean operators allows operators to feel that their choice in the marketplace is expanding rather than that wispa is changing its direction right because this is you know we, we've talked about how it's difficult to come down with a completely nuanced position that captures all of a very diverse operator base uh, you know, what 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 have you been, um, you know, hearing in your conversations with, let's call them your constituents, you know, our fellow members of WISPA, both on the vendor side and the operator side? And, you know, what's what's that message that we're we're needing to tell uh, on Capitol Hill to say, uh, you know, I don't want to you know lead you to what I think the answer is, but like this should be about choice rather than about being forced to fund a particular technology? So, for example, I'll start with one using... Uh, as an analogy, first responders, and I want to be careful here because when we talk about first responders, people can get kind of confused about what the intention. I'm, I'm not talking about people who are running into the burning buildings, uh, but I'm talking about people who who answer the call in a crisis or in a situation where a community has a need. Many of the WISP that I've talked to didn't get started because they woke up one day and said, I really love this wireless ISP technology I see out here. And so I'm going to make myself a devotee of that particular platform for the rest of my life. And I'm going to go beat this drum until everybody's head hurts. Instead, most of them started by living in an area where broadband service wasn't available. And they figured out a way to connect uh, a, a close by network point and extend service to neighbors or to other businesses. And pretty soon they discovered that they actually had a business model, you know, in it. So, 
those people who have been doing that, which are the majority of the members of WISPA, are the ones who are not really caring about the core technology as much as, can I sustain a business model in this? And can I make a difference in the needs of my community? Coming back to the first responder you know, aspect of it, <clears throat> when we think about the federal level, this national priority we now have to extend broadband everywhere and reliable broadband everywhere. Well, if we're gonna close the digital divide, and if this is truly a digital equity issue, then why in the world do we want to wait seven years to close the digital divide if we have the ability to do it in a year? You know, so if we were serious about closing the digital divide and we're serious about a definition of broadband that is what it currently is, 100 over 20 or better, <clears throat> then why wouldn't you, as the Infrastructure Act said, be technology agnostic? You know, let the horses run, let them loose. And if WISPs, want to use wireless technology to do it, and they can do it in a way that sustains a business model and can close that digital divide faster, then that solution needs to be picked. Because we all know that even we, we like to talk about future-proof technologies. The future is challenging to predict, and there is no truly future-proof technology. We're going to be replacing infrastructure faster than we think. <clears throat> and I'm not going to argue about whether that's five years or 25 years, but I think you got my point. And the final thing I'll say about WISPs that I think is really unique, it's fundamentally about resiliency. Um, you look in South Florida, for example, after Hurricane Ian went through, uh, the only surviving operator down there was a WISP. You know, they had engineered their system to be able to stay up. Unfortunately, they didn't have customers that could use them right away, but they were there up and operating, you know, very quickly. And that's classically true in serious storm sort of circumstances. And that's so the first think, recovery infrastructure. Yeah. And when, when, when you dig into that and you think, well, well, why did why did that happen? Was that because they chose the right technology or they used the right building standards or whatever? In some cases, that's true. But usually what it means is that the WISP is the one who's actually living in the community. They're hiring people in the community. They're eating in the community. They're banking in the community. The kids are going to school in the community. You know, they are the ones who hand out their cell phones to other members of the community so they know how to be reached. So if you're going to roll a truck to go solve a problem after a storm, you know, chances are the WISP is going to get there first. So the narrative that I'm trying to oppose is one that says, well, fiber is really the only thing we can do now. And anybody who's not doing fiber, you guys are out of sync with the times. It's not about that. It's about what's our national priority here. If we're going to roll out broadband, if we're going to make it competitive, make the country more competitive, no matter where people want to live, then don't put your thumbs on the scale about a technology unless you're really, really sure that that's what you want to do. Because the trade-off, you know, is that you could be waiting years to achieve this uh, sort of conceptual ideal solution when there are people out there right now on the front lines as first responders in our industry who can do it faster. Yeah, and uh, that's really, really well put, especially with the the South Florida, um, and, and you know, just as a side note, um, the WISPA was you guys had a lot of different organized uh, deals for getting help down to various WISPs down there. Uh, you guys actually, if I recall correctly, I know I was linking to your Facebook post. I think I was also linking to there was a page on your website um, where you guys were coordinating efforts. Yeah, and so for Wisco's part, I'd be the first to admit that while we weren't slow to that, we still need to get better at it uh, because we had members in South Florida that started the process of organizing on their own, and they reached out to me and said, we really need a bullhorn. You know, and so as Wispapalooza was then happening, it's like, you know, I'll give you the stage. So we we talked about that and kind of promoted that, but ultimately it came down to the initiative of the people who were most affected and who were closest to be able to help. But that is an area where I think, you know, WISPA can differentiate. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but I think it's important to, you know, mention it. Uh, before I arrived, uh, the WISPA board had undertaken a branding exercise and they really rebranded WISPA as broadband without boundaries. And so you're going to be seeing a lot of that. You're seeing it already. And it's not to divorce from the WISPA name. The WISPA name is well known. It's been around for 20 years. But we do want to emphasize in our narrative that it's not about the meaning of that letter W at the front of what it right. is that we're doing. You know, it's about entrepreneurial ISPs who are solving problems in real time using 
excellent business models and, you know, in a first responder way. I, I would say that that that's really reflected in Wispa Palooza. The last few um, shows that I've been to the first show uh, I went to, there was, there was like a couple fiber companies and they were off in this corner side, but like these last couple of shows, it is very much a, you know, there's cable options. The, um, I was talking to Justin Miller about some really cool cable options that he was work, talking to uh, fiber all over the place. Um, what I mean, every, if, if I mean, the biggest wireless companies uh, are advertising um, and make or the wireless companies that make equipment, like it's really, the options are all out there and it's a smorgasbord, um, which is really cool. And just, and I love it because I'm a nerd for <laughs> every single communication technology that you can make. Um, so, uh, so then what do you see like for guys moving forward, like as, as like a difficulty, you know, transitioning between being wireless only to, Hey, you know what? I have all these different options. Um, what are, what are the difficulties you see guys running into? So, um, these are going to be very generic, but I think you'll see these popping up in conversation uh, from time to time. You know, um, one of the first is that COVID itself really made everyone in the internet industry recognize how vital broadband really is. And so we went from being an industry, not just WISPA, but ISPs generally, that thought in terms of a best effort, effort service. You know, we're going to do our best to keep it up. Well, now, the consumer demand is around having it up all the time. We used to talk in the telco world of telco grade five, nine reliability. And I think that that's aspirational for every network operator at this point, but still the disciplines that are behind that are pretty important. And they end up, you know, guiding ISPs of all stripes to make better decisions, especially about the way they plan and implement and then manage their networks. Another, which I'll just mention kind of tangentially, is that um, a lot of uh, people who start businesses, not just in the ISP community, but in any kind of business, you know, they, they think a little bit about how they're gonna get into it. Like there's a market need, my neighbors don't have internet, so I'm gonna go help and boom, now I'm a WISP. But trying to figure out what the exit strategy looks like is really, really tricky because in many cases you don't have any kind of experience doing that before. You don't know what the market conditions are going to be, but somehow you as a business owner have to begin to spend some time thinking about, well, what is it that I want to do at what point in time? And, you know, what does that look like? Do I end up looking for opportunities to scale by acquiring other ISPs or do I become part of another team? So these these questions, you know, are there too. But I think that, you know, at least what's front of mind for me, Tommy, is that I would say that specifically for WISPs, many have kind of gotten tired of the notion that uh, we have sort of shifting sands at the federal level and to some degree at the state level of what is expected of them. Um, you know, if, if you knew that broadband was going to be 10 over 2 or something like that, and it was going to be that way for a couple of years, you might engineer your network accordingly. If uh, three years later or two years later is 100 over 20, you know, that's going to change things that you're doing. Everything from tower leases to what you're doing to, you know, buy in the first mile to the nature of the equipment that you deploy through your network to what's happening at CPE. So all of that gets to be frustrating as you get more and more customers, which is, again, not to make excuses for it. But the challenge is how do you anticipate what you're going to need? and um, to kind of underscore this point, this is one of the things that you don't hear people really talk about in the industry these days. If you go and take the average ISP, not talking about WISPs, I'm talking about, you know, throw Spectrum in there or a company like that. And you look at how much <clears throat> bandwidth is being consumed in the first mile, you know, where they actually connect to the internet on a per user basis, per capita basis. We're still looking at somewhere between on the low two and a half megabits to I'm going to be um, gracious and say on the high end, it's seven and a half, maybe 10 megabits per second, but closer to five. So if the entire capacity of your network 
going to actually out and, and you know to and from the the internet that's where internet transfer occurs that's you know where you're connecting to your upstream networks if that's five megabits per second why are we talking about a gigabit being required in individual homes multiplied by all your customers when we all know that there's not enough subsea capacity to carry all that anyway so you know i, I stated another way see now some people will hear, hear that and say well this guy really is a dinosaur in other words but truly if you go and measure that that's that's the capacity. i can i can confirm david we we have the market metrics absolutely yeah. at, at so, the, so, so how do we communicate so this becomes a measurement problem how do we communicate that there's a difference between peak and sustained or even like peak busy hour versus off-peak requirements. How do so we the, communicate this and, be, and make this become part of the broadband standard after which this whole problem, it's not that it goes away, it's that now we have, like when you talked about the the shifting sands of yeah. the measure of the standard changing out from under, under you, well, the fact is that the internet usage will, we believe, continue to grow at a steady pace. Yeah. So why don't we model that as an industry? Why don't we push this as, an, uh, as, a, uh, as a complete shift in thinking about how broadband is specified doesn't change how it's delivered right now yeah, we can right. choose yeah, a delivery sure. method that has the correct planning well and to that point if we were able to achieve some sort of common vision of that that would help our equipment manufacturers our vendors know what they're dealing with that would guide spectrum policy that would guide many many things that are happening right now instead of this sort of ad hoc uh, system that we have in place right now uh, this is a little tongue-in-cheek but you know, how many people are going to download the Library of Congress and need to do it in uh, 10 milliseconds or something like that? You know, that's sort of the ridiculousness that we get to when we're talking about speeds. Having said that, I will tell you that my son loves to see that I'm capable of gigabit speeds in my residence right now. He'll do speed tests on that when he comes over. He's wow, you have fast internet. <laughs> yeah, look what we're doing with it. When you add up all the streams that we've got for you know, our Roku and, you know, you know, prime sticks and, you know, things like that, uh, the way we're actually using internet, uh, we're very much right in the middle of that statistic I gave you earlier. It's like, yeah, I like fast internet, but what am I using it for? And, you know, to take the analogy to a ridiculous level, you know, when we built the interstate highway system, we built it between major markets sort of as a backbone. We weren't driving or we weren't building the interstate all the way to people's driveways. Yeah, I need to go 80 miles an hour down my driveway to get to the street. No, you don't. You know, you don't need a hundred thousand watt utility feed to your house either. You've got a, you know, basically a what is it, a 200 amp riser, right? 240 or something coming in. You know, there, there's there's a reasonableness test in here. How you size your sewer, your water line, or whatever else. The same sort of thing. And so, why do we get fascinated with the notion that we have to have a monster that nobody is actually you know using? I would be the first to say that if we actually had utilization at the consumer level of gigabit speeds all the time, then I would be waving the flag for we need to be able to demonstrate that we can do this across our network 100% of the time. Absolutely. But, the economics don't bear that out anyway. The whole internet is, the, the economic model of the internet is predicated on some level of oversubscription. And the problem is that the funding is not modeling that. None of the requirements are modeling that or taking that into account. The um, we did we had a discussion about this recently on maybe maybe it was Wisp Talk, Wisp Talk Tommy I think you might have been there and we were talking about someone was asking about a particular type of customer who was I you know a radiologist of some kind I believe who had a home internet connection and was as asking for a gigabit connection and there are cases where you actually do need high peak download speeds but they are rare so the fact that we can't yet model this nuance to say here's the Here's the curve. You know, most people, as you say, even at peak busy hour, really can get by with a lot less bandwidth than than it seems. Uh, versus all the way down to the to the extreme end of, well, I need to make broadband. I need to make gigabit available. When you when you look at providers who are doing uh, wireless providers, for example, who are doing a wide array of speeds, uh, the the median customer doesn't even take that fancy gold plated high speed plan. They want to know that it's available. You know. Right. So, how do we nuance? How, how do we how do we introduce this nuance to discussion to say that it's not that nobody needs it; it's that there is a curve here. Yeah. So, I've got several responses that come to mind on that. I'm just trying to ferret them out in my mind. When we talk about oversubscription, that is a traffic engineering term of art uh, that has been used in everything that's ever been 
traffic engineered, including everything I said earlier, power systems, highway systems, sewer systems, water systems, telephone systems, they're all traffic Urinals. Urin, yeah, all of them are. So Train there's system. nothing nefarious about traffic engineering and internet connection. <clears throat> but uh, you know, you're right. For example, at Broadband VI, we were capable of delivering wirelessly gigabit both ways service to customers who needed that. And so we ended up, you know, in our case, doing some customer qualification to figure out what, what that need really was. So they weren't just talking about it, but it was actually there and we could deliver that if that were the case. But I think, as you know, Jeremy, from the work that you've done elsewhere, if you go and actually talk to customers about what they're using, the sweet spot still for internet is somewhere in the 50 to 75 megabit per second range. It won't be there forever. Yeah, maybe not even quite that high. Um, What we find is that over... You know, definitely under 25 megabits, there there's some, I would say demand is frequently outstripping supply. But once you get over 50 megabits a second on the, the peak plan, bandwidth consumption actually grows very slowly. It right. grows right. on the order of like a, a four to one or a two to one ratio. So throwing gigabit plans in everywhere doesn't automatically free up these, wow, we've got these uses, you know, we can, we can stream the metaverse at, at low latency. Those are all wonderful applications of high bandwidth, but they don't immediately create the demand for such. So one of the things that we did, and I won't go into the specifics other than to give you the example because it'll be clear enough, but if we had customers who run a 25 meg plan or something like that at an access point or a few, we would occasionally run tests to see what their actual demand would be. So we would, these weren't throttled, but these were connections that were set a certain way. So we would reset them up to like 50 and then just watch the peak demand and what would happen. And generally, if you had a 25 meg customer, you'd see that the uh, consumption would actually increase and go over 25, but it would very uh, rarely reach 50. So we tried the same thing on 50 meg customers to see what would happen. <clears throat> and I thought that our network operations center was gonna come unglued because they weren't ready to do that everywhere. But you know, we ended up saying, well, let's just try it, see what happens. We did that, rolled it up to 100 or something like that, and nothing changed. Right. You know, so this was not a situation where we had somehow pent-up demand that we were not able to carry through our network. This was a situation where we were seeing all of the demand that was being presented to the network. And it sort of makes sense if you look at it. If you've got somebody who's gaming at home in the evening or they're watching television or they're doing something else like browsing, or maybe they've got some file transfer going. You put all those things together, a Zoom call like we're on right now is about five megs. Even less. I'm using about a meg in and out right now. Yeah. So you can fit, and again, I'm being generous, but you can fit 10 Zoom calls. Who's doing that at home? And the same thing when when you're talking about streaming services, uh, there are lots of ways you can improve the efficiency of streaming. So it it is kind of rare that you see demand at, at a residential uh, uh, consumer level that gets to be high. Business is completely different argument. All right, so you're asking how do we nuance? You know, that that is, and that's a conundrum because again, you know, people hear the big number of gig. Oh, I want that. I gotta have that. Everybody says so. Yeah, it's a super hard conversation. What about maybe like a slightly different pivot on that? Uh, you know, recently we've been having more stirrings of renewal of net neutrality rules um, at the federal level. Um, you know, we we made it as an industry through the first round, and in a lot of ways the industry you know did really well because we were like, yeah, whatever you want to run, we don't care. It costs us more money to, <laughs> to to keep track of what you're doing anyways, so we ain't gonna do it. That that was always my conference. You know, when a customer would ask. Uh, I would be like, I, it costs me more money to have servers paying attention to it than it would be to just let you go through. So have fun. Um, well, so wh- what do you feel moving forward? So as you can imagine, the advocacy around this is is huge on both sides. And so you have to look at who's advocating and where the, the interests lie, sometimes the special interests. And so there's usually a reason why somebody is advocating for uh, the meat of the matter in net neutrality. But as you said, and what we've seen play out is that ISPs, the vast majority, I'm almost willing to say all of them, but I can't prove that, but the vast majority 
they're not throttling anybody. They're not measuring for content. They're not doing things that are sort of putting their thumbs on the scale of what gets through and what doesn't. Um, yeah, if anything, I think the ISPs are just trying to find a way to shape their traffic so that they can deliver what a consumer wants more efficiently. But that's not to say we're going to stop you because we don't like what you're actually you know, doing here. So um, I think most of the members that I've talked to look at net neutrality and they're saying, you know, why? I mean, we're already there. So what is it really that that is being argued for that we're not already providing? And um, you know, we'll see where that goes. David, it also could be a case where, you know, there are a few and vocal who end up being the focal points for whatever ire is raised. You know, there are, there's a, a very small minority of WISPs who want to influence their traffic in a non-net neutral way. So everybody else is like, what's the big deal? We're already, we're already there, you know? Right. Um, I kind of wanted to ask a, a related question about this though, which is, you know, now we're seeing um, you know, we're seeing some movement in the six gigahertz space, you know, where, where we got the announcement yesterday that the, um, you know, the automatic frequency coordination uh, systems are are now um, going to be able to be used in six gigahertz, which is dramatically going to increase the amount of spectrum that's available to WISPs. Um, are we as a, you know, what, since we're focusing as an industry on all of the, all of the methods that we can use to deliver service today, are we, um, are we seeing some some change in how WISPs are needing to advocate about spectrum? So, you know, because six gigahertz is obviously a different beast, even from the licensed that we see with CBRS, which was a, a new beast. Like, are there are there um, are there you know future advocacy that WISPA not to tip anybody's hand or anything, but you know, are there are there some stories that we are telling our each other and you know learning about here that that could give us some additional leverage in the future as we're trying to tell the story that. I mean, ultimately, it all ends up on wireless at some point, whether it's your your cell phone or your Wi-Fi right. at home. You know, everybody, right. when you get home, you want to connect to the Wi-Fi immediately, right? The, the Wi-Fi is the great success story of this millennium uh, from a technological uh, perspective. So um, are, are we, you know, in the, in the ongoing wireless battle, uh, do we have additional things that we want to say to the FCC, just as we want to say things about how how broadband speeds are measured uh, or how fiber is funded or how technology is chosen. Well, any, any advances on that wireless front? So the first thing I'd want people to understand is that there's a policy committee at WISPA that WISPA members have mechanisms of being able to join or to follow, and they help shape you know, the priorities that we end up setting. And work we do primarily with the FCC, although that's expanding to pretty much anybody who's involved in Spectrum these days. So uh, you mentioned six gig, Richard Bernhardt, who is our Senior Director of uh, Spectrum and Industry or Industry and Spectrum, uh, does a lot of work on various uh, working groups, you know, WinForum, uh, Ongo Alliance, things of this sort. And in some cases he chairs uh, to specifically work on the technological back end of how this is gonna work, setting the standards. And then that's coupled with our advocacy, policy advocacy with the FCC to try to make sure that uh, the needs of WISPs is not just about opening more spectrum, but to make sure that WISPs are treated fairly because there are competing interests. There's some that would say everything that's opened up by the FCC needs to be auctioned. You know, it needs to be auctioned to really big blocks like, uh, you know, metropolitan areas, which would be financially prohibitive for many of the WISPs, you know, to be able to go in and compete. <clears throat> so we're looking at both the back end of the standards, we're looking at the front end, what's the mechanism by which uh, the spectrum would be made available. And we're also looking wherever we can at doing something that's gonna fit within the vendor community. Because to the extent that we can take a technology that's already in place and expand it, because we're talking about band adjacency or something like that, then we find that vendors usually can look at that and say, okay, that's a relatively easy ask to be able to improve uh, the performance of systems that we have in place these are relatively modest upgrades rather than going and having a new piece of equipment that's going to work in a narrow band over here that maybe 50 people in the world want to use, you know, that sort of thing. So you will see us active not only in six gig, but we're in uh, working on the uh, 3.1 to 3.45 uh, gig goal uh, uh, band. We're working with the FCC on that. Uh, we're looking at higher bands, um, 37 gig, um, and we're specifically. Like I said, I think I would uh, uh, defer to Richard or to Louis Peretz, who would be able to give you the book blow by blow. I have a, a, 
summary in front of me, but it's a few pages long. So rather than read it to you, I would just say that we are absolutely all over this, both from the back end and the front end side. And we'd appreciate uh, you know help from our members too, in the sense that if you've got priorities that you want us to be you know focused on, we want to hear it. We've gotten some feedback, for example, from some of our members who are still disappointed that the 3.65 you know, licenses ended up going CBRS. Um, but the CBRS is available, uh, the GA is available, and we were able to get that cleared uh, or, or rather recognized by the FCC as a licensed service for the purpose of the bead NOFO. And so, you know, that can be a situation where you can eke out a win, even though you might have some uh, members who aren't happy with the transition that, you know, kind of happened along the way. So every voice is important in the process, but we are working. On that, on that side, David, is there just really no, no purchase at all uh, with the idea that we can get that language reversed? The language which specifically says that unlicensed is unreliable. So one of the things we have to be careful about on the narrative here, and I thank you for the opportunity to say this, is that actually what the NTIA said is that they were excluding unlicensed fixed wireless delivered to the end user within their definition of reliable broadband service. So that's a capital R. So that's a defined term. So what NTI has told us repeatedly is that they didn't mean to say that uh, unlicensed spectrum is lowercase unreliable. They just weren't including it in their bucket of capital R reliable broadband service. And when we've asked them that question of why, the answer they've come back with is they're concerned about future availability. And so we ran that to ground with the FCC. The FCC has said there's no problem with future availability of that spectrum. The question had arisen, well, maybe the FCC would eventually take the unlicensed away and license it, you know, so it would not be available on that basis. Best answer I have for you right now is that their concern is that unlicensed spectrum, because it is unlicensed, uh, can eventually be overrun with congestion uh, if it's not managed properly. And so the, there can't be a guarantee, the notion goes, that reliable lowercase broadband service could be delivered over a congested network. So we've gone through the process of trying to educate NTIA on things that are happening, both at what the carriers do already. It's not true frequency coordination in the sense they're following with FCC, but generally competitors will work with each other to make sure that they are staying off of each other's you know, uh, channels. Uh, the that, automated frequency. Yeah, that does. That does seem like a legitimate use of the term in that context where yeah. we're, you know, but everyone has, if you run on license, you have under understood that there is a rise in background noise levels and spectrum does get, you know, let's say it's just, it does get overused. It is a tragedy of the commons, but right. in most cases, however, that is not to my understanding, a conflict between multiple fixed wireless providers, rather it's fixed wireless versus other applications of can be yeah, so right it can be <clears throat> and so you'll find vendors whether you know you're talking about vendors like you know cambium or toronto or sickly or others these are companies that are uh, you know actively engaged in developing technologies that become more sensitive to the environments in which they're operating and can shift you know accordingly in fact one of the things we're doing with the uh, ntia next week is there's a sort of a a technical exchange that's going on between the vendor community within WISPA, a subset of them, and the um, NTIA community to help them understand why um, fixed, you know, unlicensed fixed wireless is reliable, even in the way that it's implemented today. So the NTIA appears to be in agreement. They haven't said this publicly, but based on my read, they don't doubt that unlicensed can deliver broadband speeds as they're um, uh, defined today. They have a question about future availability. We're trying to get that particular uh, answer uh, to them in a way that they can sort of relax because the, the, the NOFO is not really aligned to the infrastructure bill. The Infrastructure Act said technology neutral. So NTI right. came up with this on their own. So there is an opportunity for them to shift the upcoming election might be helpful in doing that because NTIA as a part of the Department of Commerce has to salute whoever the president is. And although we're not seeing the president change in this election, there still could be a pretty seismic shift in the Congress. And we know that the Congress is following closely 
you know, this as it applies to the rollout of the bid funds. So all of that's in the air. I'm not going to hazard a bet on how that's going to work out. I'm just saying that from an advocacy perspective, we've been working very hard with NTIA to help them understand what it is that we're seeing. And there are other issues with the NOFO we could go into. You know, there's a letter of credit requirement, which we think is very problematic. Uh, they have talked in terms of, uh, uh, well, you know, a hybrid fiber, or not hybrid fiber, but hybrid licensed and unlicensed solution would be acceptable to them. Well, what does that look like? Because you you can find <clears throat> hybrid uh, systems primarily in backhaul and middle mile, um, sort of as capacity expansion. But when you're talking about doing at the uh, CPE level, those are a little harder to find. They're beginning to come into the market. Um, well, then, it's going to raise your costs significantly. And yeah. if your goal is to maximize coverage, you know, back to your earlier point about resiliency and WISPs, you know, having this resilient mindset, you know, I, I gave a talk about this back at Wispapalooza and you are absolutely right. It's not a, it's not a technology. Resiliency isn't a technology, right? It's a mindset and it's yeah, an application right. of technology, right. you know, that it's a behavior that emerges out of, uh, out of good choices. Right. So on the side of, of, you know, making sure that WISPs, you know, can use whatever tool they need. So that's what they do by nature. Uh, they, they use the right tools, ideally. The, the successful ones <laughs> use the right <laughs> tools, right? Um, I really, I just want to say, I appreciate your efforts, uh, you know, the, the the work that WISPA is doing and wanted to give another plug again for that policy committee because I, I haven't been able to attend for a number of months. I did attend for a number of years. I encourage uh, particularly operators, not just vendors, to to spend time, uh, you know, paying attention to what WISPA is. WISPA is working on a lot of things at any given time, and a relatively small percentage of WISPA membership take advantage of that opportunity to really uh, make a difference. And the feedback that WISPA gets from its members is really critical. So I just wanted to put in another plug for that, David. And I appreciate that. You know, our members are busy. I get that. I was busy at Broadband VI, and so we leaned on WISPA. We were kind of a consumer of information that was coming out of WISPA. And usually if you're going to get frustrated with WISPA, it's when something didn't go the way you thought it should go or something like that. It's not because of a lack of effort or people are not right. paying attention. Uh, folks at WISPA are working their butts off to you know make sure that they're staying in front of all this that they can. And we are sometimes adverse to other interests and other times aligned. It's just the nature of the beast in Washington. And I get that. And it's now rolling out to the state. So the comment earlier from Tommy about Colorado, I get that too. So one of the things I would like to announce to the extent that uh, listeners don't know, uh, we were able to secure a major expansion of our advocacy budget for state purposes. And so the ability for WISPA to be able to be much more active in supporting state advocacy is growing and uh, uh, and that's a direct response to the circumstance that we're in. So you're going to be hearing more about that too. That's really awesome to hear. Um, I guess what, you know, coming up uh, and we have WISP America uh, in the spring. Uh, so that's where people will get to uh, interact again with a lot of the WISPA crew. Uh, what other shows are coming up? So that's in March of 2023. Uh, and we're working with our other partners, uh, you know, or, uh, entities we're aligned with. Nate, for example, there's a, a lot of overlap. WIA, there's a lot of overlap. I don't want to leave anybody out here. It's just you find that, especially when it comes to moving advocacy in Washington, D.C., there are a lot of ways that we can align our interests. And one of the things that, you know, even with uh, firms like CTIA, um, I've uh, worked with a counterpart there and I said, look, we're not going to be transactional in the way that we work together. We're going to be relational. So we, we recognize we're going to butt heads on some pretty big topics here, but I don't leave any stone unturned where there are things we can work on together because members of Congress need to hear that and the agencies need to, need to hear that. We need to be able to move you know, forward, making progress together where we can. And that seems to be you know, resonating. And in that time, we've had a couple of great arguments with CTI, and we've had some pretty good. Yeah, that was a good deal to do together. So fantastic. A related question, David, I have for you is: What kind of outreach is WISPA doing for, uh, uh, you know, probably operators primarily, but also vendors, operators who didn't con con consider themselves to be WISPs, but have begun to do wireless and may not yet realize the work that WISPA is doing on their behalf uh, behind the scenes. 
how, to expand that membership base? Like what, what, what are the things that we're doing this year, you know, 2023 coming up? Uh, apart from like going to Fiverr shows and having a booth. <laughs> yes. Well, you know, we've, we've got a lot of vendors in common and we have folks who come to uh, uh, our shows and that's a passive, that's sort of not order taking, but that's an opportunity to meet somebody when they're kind of on your home turf and can see what's going on. We're obviously looking at what uh, uh, people are doing on the 477s and the degree we can see at the BDC so that we kind of have an idea of who's out there and what they're doing. Um, but at the end of the day, it's not just about building a list of people we can contact and say, hey, you're a WISP, we might be useful to you. It really comes down to what is it we what are we doing that is uh, going to be demonstrating value to both our existing members and the members that we want to be able to attract. And, and ultimately, people vote with their feet if they're not seeing it. So one of the things I'm, I'm happy about with the expansion of the state um, uh, budget, the budget for state advocacy, is that, you know, if you think about what we do at a federal level, I think most people give us credit for that. It's like, well, I can't do that. I'm not going to go spend a bunch of time trying to figure out how to navigate the FCC and NTIA and USDA and Treasury and White House. But when it comes to their own home states, in many cases, our members may have relationships there already. So they may know their their state their, their congressman and their state office, or they may even know their broadband office uh, CEO or whatever it's you know called in that particular state. So members might be more plugged in than we are, and so if we're going to be relevant to our members when they're working on state level advocacy, a place that's kind of more on their home turf then we have to find ways to deliver value that is tangible to them in order for them to say, okay, WISPA really, you know, help me out on this one. And I think that we do have a, a real opportunity to do that. And we are doing that in several states already. But uh, even in the case where we have a member that knows their member of, you know, their state Congress, um, you know, strength in numbers matters. So, Maybe, I know I didn't answer your yeah. question, Jeremy, but you know, I gave you some breadcrumbs anyway. No, I think that was a great answer, David. Thank you. So even even if somebody isn't um a member of WISPA, you know, they you I'm certain that you guys would love to chat with them if they can get you in contact with their uh state reps and oh, heck give yes. us yeah. Yeah. Def, yeah. So and and that and that can only benefit WISPA and wireless internet service providers as a whole, because you know, the more you know, fed, you know, even lo local governments that are like, oh, you know what, this, these little guys, they're awesome. They make our lives amazing. They make things, they solve our problems. They interact with us because you, you see the big guys and they just, you know, blow you away. Like CenturyLink, they're the, they're the easy whipping boy for the, our entire industry. <laughs> um, but it's, it's so nice to see, you know, interaction um, at a personal level and relational, as you were saying. Yeah, you know, we have strength in numbers that we rely on too. You know, we, we don't by any means have all of the WISPs in our membership, uh, but there are roughly, you know, more or less 3,000 sort of identifiable WISPs around the country right now. That's the sort of latest model we've been able to develop. And they're serving somewhere between, I call it 9 million, maybe 10 million subscribers in these areas that to the federal government look like the frontier. You know, they're at the edge of the digital divide or whatever. That's a pretty impressive number. When you're talking about having a constituency of 3,000 WISPs serving 9 to 10 million people who are exactly where the federal government's trying to program all this money, you know, that matters. And we represent a substantial part of that, but not all of them. But we lean on the fact that there are a bunch of WISPs out there, even though they're not members. So it's too trite for me to say I see nothing but members and future members, you know, in the WISP community. But because people are going to choose you know, what's what's best for them. But uh, but regardless, I think WISPA is going to be aligned to and delivering value, whether they recognize it as a member or not. That's absolutely fair. Yeah, I, I know multiple WISPs who just never chosen to be members, but they're getting the benefit just as much. And, you know, WISPAs clearly has the, you know, the, the is the dominant voice of WISP. As we said, that's a that's a diverse crowd and has many opinions in it. But, uh, you know, I, I think I think WISPA really tries hard. So maybe a little bit of a divergent mentioned on kind of manufacturers every every year or a couple times a year i see people talking about like let's get together and purchase and bulk 
Okay, let's be big. Let, let's purchase big. Why doesn't Wispa do this for us? Um, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I have my own personal thoughts of how that would never work, but. <laughs> so, you know, Tommy, I would say never say never, but I will say uh, I'm not you know breaking any code here, but I would say that we have looked at that in the past and we've watched other industry associations do it. And there are a few problems that you run into and you, when you do that. You can end up in a situation where you've got kind of this co-op going, kind of for lack of a better term, trying to get some power, uh, some buying power. And then the co-op buys a bunch of stuff that isn't consumed by you know their members. And now the co-op ends up upside down. And so it's harder. It's not just about managing funds and about seeming bigger than you are. It's about you know the fact that you've got a bunch of different players who are in the room who have different priorities, and it's not the best analogy. But if you think about you know maybe in our younger days and when we're trying to find an apartment we share with two or three other people, it sounds really brilliant at the first. We all go in and somebody's got to own the lease, and then roommate number one gets married or gets a job in another city, and now you're down to two roommates. And how are you going to deal with the financial? aspect of that. So you go in with the plan that this is all going to be great, but the execution ends up being trickier. And I think that's, you know, one of the things that ends up tripping up these sorts of deals. We know of other industry associations who've actually done it and um, have abandoned it um, because it wasn't working well for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that's usually where I feel like it's going to end. Well, so um, Jeremy, did you have like some uh kind of wrapping up we're a little bit after where i was kind of aiming and i think we've covered a lot of ground i i'm i'm very happy you know i i'm this has been a fantastic conversation and it's been great to get to know you a little bit david you know we didn't really have you never have time at the show to, no, no. to talk to everybody for as long as you want you know it was great to meet you and it's been wonderful to hear a little bit about your your vision for for wispa and thank you very much well thank you very much and thank you tommy for the invitation today yeah, it was really great. Uh, did you have any final words for people? Just be sure to visit us at wispa.org um, or uh, find a way to engage at any of our uh, trade shows or, you know, by all means, uh, hit me up by email. Uh, you'll also find me on Facebook. The email is dzumwalt at wispa.org. Um, but, uh, uh, but I want to hear from you. And I want to make sure that you're connected in ways that you want to be connected to WISPA. Yeah, definitely would be the way to go. So, uh, well, thank you very much for doing this again. Uh, I want to shout out to Mike Wendy, your marketing guy, who has been amazing to work with uh, for multiple years that I've been interacting with Wispa. Uh, he is an awesome guy. Anybody, if you ever get his chance, shake his hand because he's a really interesting fellow to chat oh, with. Oh, I, so. yeah. <laughs> I agree. I've been, I've been fortunate to have him work with me on the education committee at WISPA since we started it. And you're right. He's a, he's a, he's a real, he's a real backbone. I love it. Also little shout out, um, women, women, yeah, the pink shirt is for the, uh, actually yes. Jeremy, how about you? You just I'm representing. Yeah. So it's one of the things that we've done as, uh, you know, kind of a result of our work with the education committee at WISPA is started a women of WISPA initiative. Uh, you know, it's really taken on a life of its own. We've now had two, um, two sessions, you know, one at WISPA America in the, uh, in last spring, and then one just at WISPA Palooza last month. And we had fantastic turnout, I think over 120 people uh, whispered, you know, get, t- told us about it in the recent numbers. And that's not an organization that's just for for women. This is an organization that is to raise visibility and awareness of what women are doing in the industry and let them know this is a path. This is a path that can work for me. I mean, there are women engineers, there are women WISP owners and operators, there are women installers, like everything that that uh, that can that can be done can be done by women as well. So uh, it's it's great for me to be able to see that our organization, you know, WISPA as an organization has now risen to the level where we can actually sustain, um, you know, additional kind of like, you can call it a special interest group if you want, but additional uh, pushes that are uh, really about raising the awareness within the, the wider community as well of what's what's actually happening, this really cool work that's going on. So I encourage you, if you uh, check it out on Facebook uh, or on LinkedIn, there are groups in both places, Women of WISPA, um, and uh, definitely try to stay involved. There will be another session in the spring. Uh, and I, I think one of us was also uh, helping sponsor some of the ongoing webinars uh, that are happening. So uh, that's, right. that's really, it's really great to see that come out of the education committee and um, encourage you all to check it out and yeah. a plug for the ed committee as well. 
Yeah, so I we were chatting about that last time. I was like, I gotta make certain yes. and your shirt reminded me. So uh that's the excellent of it. So yeah, drop thank me you. an email at uh Jeremy at preseam.com if you want to talk about either of those things. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's how you reach him. Um, thank you again. Um Patreon, the forward slash the buzz wisp, all the other fun stuff. Uh everybody have a wonderful day and take care. Thanks a lot, Tommy. Greg, it's the brothers wisp. Let's take a ride through space on this mothership. Wireless networking. We talk about equipment and methodology. So sit back and start learning. Lighting up the tower so people can start searching. Shooting up the web and neighborhoods, net surfing. We got horrible jokes. We're loud and annoying. But we're informative facts. We're not disappointing. Just give us a listen. Cause fun is the mission. I'm telling you, you don't know what you are missing. Ideas and some good comedy given. If you missed the show already, don't worry. You're forgiven.